Welcome back to How to Sell an Agency, the podcast sharing the stories of how agencies are built and sold. I'm your host, Matt Bennett. I'm a built and sold founder myself and now work with other agencies in the capacity of advisor, mentor, and non-exec. I'm breaking from the format a little for today's podcast. Previous episodes have led to me being asked a lot of questions that I am frankly unqualified to answer, so I thought it would be useful to bring on someone who is. My guest today is Will Anderson, who's my first guest not to have built an agency themselves. Will is Corporate and Commercial Director at Clark & Sons, the law firm who assisted me when I sold my agency. In our conversation, we'll step through what business owners can expect when embarking on the sale, and also what we can be doing even years in advance to make such an event more successful and indeed more likely to happen. It contains loads of actionable stuff, so grab your notepads and listen in. I started off by asking Will how much his role now centred on mergers and acquisitions. In terms of mergers and acquisitions, very much the bulk of my time, probably 80% plus of my of my workload is in that sector in some capacity. I don't just specialize in, in agency businesses. We, we do, we're not sector specific per se, but over time I've developed, I guess, a bit of expertise and a bit of a following in probably two or three industries of which agency is certainly one of those. But yeah, I do a lot and work with lots of clients, creative clients, which is quite nice when you're, as a lawyer, probably not in the most creative and fast paced of industries, but so it's quite nice to work with some people that, that have a different way of working and a kind of a, certainly probably more exciting <laughs> sector yes. to be in than the legal sector. So your personal involvement is mostly M&A now? Yeah. We also deal with you know, the commercial contract side of things. So day-to-day trading terms, any kind of agreements, it might be standard agreements for one of our clients or our clients may be sent a contract from a party that they want to want to work with. And, and then we have various other sort of commercial, commercial services w- within the wider business, commercial real estate. So properties, leases, that kind of things. Also employment and licensing work for hospitality clients, or even some agencies like to have a nice bar space. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that happens as well. So yeah, we cover everything. We also have IP and brand protection specialists as well who deal with that sort of side of things. Does the M&A work tend to filter out the other commercial work? So you have that relationship already or, or are people like me coming to you directly for Yeah, that? so a, a lot of the commercial work would normally come first because that's day-to-day running of a business. And then if you build that relationship with someone whilst you're doing that, looking after their commercial stuff or, stuff, or it could be their corporate stuff. So it could be things like shareholders agreements or doing a bit of restructuring, creating new group, creating subsidiary companies, raising some finance or investment, uh, whether that's debt or whether it's equities looking for additional investors to raise some capital. You know, we do all of that side of stuff, side of things as well. Yeah, that's definitely more where I'm focused. Through this podcast and just the conversations I've had with other agency owners, I think we've run the gamut from what people see as an acquisition, these kind of tens of millions deals, down to one person's had enough, needs a way of moving the, the clients and the team on, or even if there's not a team. So... There's a huge range. In terms of if your role, how, how much of that range do you get involved with? Presumably there's a point where people are going, I need to not be paying for too much legal support. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the range is, is huge. You're, we've done deals that are 50K to 100K, and then we've done much larger sort of multi-million pound deals. The largest deal we've, we've ever done, which wasn't in this sector, was sort of 140 million. It really is quite a large range. Most... The, the most active area for, for M&A transactions is what, what, what 
kind of insurance companies refer to as, as small transactions, which is a bit misleading really, because their, their kind of definition of a small transaction is something that's less than 20 million. Now, most owner managed businesses where you're talking two or three business owners, if they're yeah. getting a good chunk of 20 million quid, they're, they're pretty happy. So I, I do think it's a little bit misleading. And then the mid market is, is that kind of 20 million upwards. And then you obviously get to the really large deals, which are the multi-billion uh, pound or multi-billion dollar deals. In kind of the agency space, I think we've seen deals that are 150K right up to probably 10 or 15 million is not unheard of. I think that there's perhaps a a realization with certain elements of agency sectors that it's quite hard to value them because so much of the the goodwill is tied up in in the people, a bit like with lawyers, you're, you're almost professional services. So it's not like you're sitting on lots of expensive machinery and stock and stuff. If you've got some really good coders or designers or, or, or planners, whoever it is in your business, then if those people leave your business, quite often the work will go with them. It's a, a lot of the goodwill and a lot of the value is tied into the people you have yeah. there. So locking them in and that in terms of having things in place for their, their, their incentivization, but also having good contracts that, that make it harder for them to leave and, and poach clients or go and set up an agency doing a very similar kind of style to, to the agency yeah. they were formerly employed um, by, because that's something we see quite a lot. Good people go set up somewhere else and they basically take the style of the type of work they were doing and say, oh, look, I'm over here now and I'll carry on doing very similar thing. So yeah, I think that probably explains why there is such a, a range. It's an industry as well where I think there's a quite a high turnover of staff and a lot of use of freelancers and, and contractors. It's not, if you look at the balance sheet of a creative agency, for example, there's not loads on there. There's, there's going to be some debtors and some IT equipment. There's not the sort of balance sheet you might see in certain other industries. Yeah, there's an interesting point inside that is I think a, a lot of the people I speak to have thought about employment contracts in terms mm. of non-purge, but not freelancer contracts. And I think yeah, equally yeah. relying on the freelancer won't do that because they'll get bad name. Whereas would they do that? The right clothing and the right money. With freelancers, there is a very specific problem, which may be worth talking about further in terms of their ownership of IP. Now, if you've got an employee, even if it's not specifically stated in their employment contract, it is deemed the work they carry out during the course of their employment is owned by the employer and not them personally. It's a little bit more of a gray area. When it comes to freelancers and so you know i would always say that you should have a freelancers agreement and it should be very clear and explicitly set out in there that the work they undertake belongs to the company engaging them and probably also include an assignment provision in that so that any ip that is created is legally assigned to the company and i have seen that cause issues in transactions where you know the the target company being acquired has made use of freelancers for, for certain projects and there's been no written terms and we've had to give indemnities or go and try and get mm. assignments from those contractors and freelance workers to try and make sure that IP that the company is claiming its ownership of actually is lodged with that company. So freelancers really is quite a, it's something that people don't think about, but yeah. actually not having that, that box stuff probably can cause quite significant issues when you get down to the kind of a, a sale or acquisition situation. Yeah, for us, I remember that being a, a point on the due diligence, but it was just yeah. a, a box tick for us because it wasn't an issue. But yeah, I can imagine if you've been, if you've been using freelancers for the last 10 years without that paperwork in place, suddenly that's causing some concern at the acquirer's end. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for those 
agencies or, or those businesses who are engaging you specifically for M&A that you don't have that past experience of commercial work. At what point are you typically getting involved in the process? And I suppose also, at what point should you be if they're different? In those sorts of instances, there would normally be a, yeah, a recommendation or referral to, to us. I'm going to say referral. I don't mean a fee-paying referral, but someone that, that we've worked with in the past, yeah. whether that's a you know, corporate finance person that's, that's perhaps or agent that's representing the, the, the buyer or, or, or seller or an accountant or someone that that's obviously has that kind of ongoing relationship and, and knows more about the day-to-day mm-hmm. thoughts of the business owners. They're the ones that would normally contact us and say, oh, this is my client X that they're looking to sell. They've had a few offers that they, they, they need some legal advice now. And that we've recommended you for that job. Mm-hmm. We would always say the earlier, the better with, with that sort of thing. To me, my preference is always to be involved in the putting together any heads of terms. Other people do, agents in particular, will, will try and put together a heads of terms. And some of them are fine, but a lot of them focus very heavily on certain commercial terms without thinking uh, more widely about particular legal issues, which are going to need to be covered and may be worth including in the heads of terms. And so ideally, I would like to have a look at those draft heads of terms and, and, and help draft them. And then that would be my usual point of engagement, almost, almost at the outset before that. It would be fairly usual for the seller and maybe their accountants to share some financial details with a potential acquirer so that they can get a feel for where the business is on a financial footing and also where their price, if you will, for the, for, for the business is going to be set. That was a, and a, for me and talking to some other people, that was quite a nervy point pre-heads of terms where you suddenly yeah. feel like you're sharing quite a lot about the business with and the A protection you've got is in our case, I'm sorry to say it, I'll watch your face as I say it, some crappy NDA off the internet, which is the, that's the go-to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Google. That, 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 it's the yeah. best Google yeah. advisor. At least we made sure it was a UK one. I've seen quite a lot yeah. of that where it's clearly not even, but that's calling, that feels quite exposing. So the, the deal we did was we had, I, I suppose if I'm going to keep the definition broad, we had six approaches over the, a few years three more serious and it was obviously the final one um, that we went with they, and they weren't simultaneous but the first one we had it was really interesting because i completely bottled it and it was around that time where the, they were requiring more and more information i just felt like i had this flimsy yeah. and they were would have been a direct competitor as well and as they came to me i wasn't particularly looking to sell i was just quite interested in hearing what they had to say it became quite easy to back out later. How much protection do those documents really give people? Right. At the end of the day, it is just a piece of paper. Obviously, I would always recommend having that that non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement in place. And some of them can be fairly comprehensive. Some of them can be a bit flimsy, as you say. I would always have one. I would always ensure that the confidentiality provisions are for a decent length of time. I do see some NDAs that sit across that basically only cover the period whilst the parties are negotiating, which it's not worth the paper is printed on in, in that case. It needs to be for at least a few years post any withdrawal from negotiations. You can have them indefinite, but that becomes very difficult to show whether you were really still making use of information you found that you found out during the course of those negotiations. Two or three years is probably probably the, the right sort of period of time. But at the end of the day, it is just a piece of paper. If someone wants to go and make use of confidential information in, in the incorrect manner, it's not going to stop them doing that. What it does give you is potentially contractual recourse against them. And yeah, you'd be looking for some damages to compensate you or perhaps even 
looking at some sort of injunction to stop them making use of it. But it does focus the mind and make sure everyone is treating the transaction seriously and, and properly. The other thing that we can do is look to redact certain very sensitive information in the due diligence process, potentially redacting the names of, of clients or of key members of, of staff. That's a bit harder to do now because then we can go onto a, a business's website yeah. and usually see who the people are there and what kind of role they're in. And then if you send them some redacted information about those employees, it's not that hard to put two and yeah. two together and work out who's who and what their salary and packages and that kind of stuff. There's a limit to what you can do, but certainly you can use that redacting mechanism to, to mitigate your risk to an extent. I wonder if it's worth use your experience across multiple deals and just spell out what the kind of the key steps are, because when we're talking about it, oh, it's that initial exploratory and then it's head to yeah. What do you see as the common key steps in the transaction? So the, the first thing to remember is there are two ways, there are actually more than that, but two common ways that businesses you know, are, are acquired and, and sold. And that is either by way of a share sale or a business and an asset sale. So obviously to be a share sale, you have to have a limited company. You can't do it if you're a sole trader or a partnership or anything like that. And essentially when you have a share sale, it's the ownership around the company that changes. The company itself and all of its contractual rights and obligations, et cetera, stay exactly as they are. It's just the people that ultimately hold the shares that change. That's what you did in, in your transaction, Matt. You sold your shares to your acquirer who paid you some money for them and yeah, gave you a few shares in, in, in their company, et cetera. The other way, the business and asset route, your buyer will cherry pick the bits of the business that they want, take them away and leave sellers with, well, or leave the target with the other bits that haven't been bought. So they may say, look, we want your employees, we want your contracts, we want your business name, but we don't want your tax liabilities. We don't want your, we don't want your leasehold premises because we've got an office down the road that's got plenty of space for your staff to come across. And that is usually a quicker process. The fees, professional fees are, are slightly less doing it that mm -hmm. way, but it's not as tax efficient usually. And it does leave the sellers with a, a company with stuff that needs to be cleared down before it yeah. can be wound up. That, that would work if you're selling a division of what you do. But if you're selling the whole business, then, then really most sellers want to go down the, the share sale route. In terms of how a transaction, most people, assuming that most people want to go down the, the share sale route, the, the usual steps for that transaction is there will be an offer, whether that's unsolicited or whether it comes through some sort of corporate finance professional or an agent who might be representing buyers or sellers who are interested in that particular sector. So there will be an offer that's made, there'll be some negotiation, there'll be some kind of pre-offer due diligence, which is normally financial due diligence, as I said, yes. a way of ascertaining the financial footing of the target and what, where the sort of equity value and on offer should be. Once that kind of that price and headline terms are agreed, we normally put those into a set of heads of terms, which set out the key commercial and some of the key legal principles of the transaction from the seller's point of view, how much they're going to be paid, how it's being paid, when it's being paid, and then any sort of ongoing involvement any of the sellers uh, are going to have either with the, the company that's being sold or with the buyer. Um, and then also it, it's not uncommon to have some uh, of the legal principles around things like time limit for restrictive covenants um, or time limits um, and financial limits for any claims that, that fall from the share purchase agreement. Once the heads of terms are signed, we then head to the legal due diligence exercise, 
which is fairly daunting for sellers, particularly if they haven't been through that process before, either on the buy side or, or, or sell side. But essentially, the buyer will send a pretty long spreadsheet or, or, or document setting out a lot of questions uh, about all aspects of your business. So that'll be your contracts, your accounts, uh, your insurance, your financial facilities, your employees, your assets. Um, pensions, you know, all sorts of stuff, which the sellers have to go away. They have to answer those questions as best they can and also provide a lot of supporting documentation for their answers. And that's normally then all stored in, in, in some sort of virtual data room. Um, so mm-hmm. on our hosted platform, which the buyer and sellers have access to, that information is placed up there. Uh, the buyer will review it. They may ask further questions. They almost certainly will ask some further questions, which come out of the information that's been supplied. And essentially what the buyer is looking for is just to make sure there's nothing there, which is either very unexpected or which would cause them to either renegotiate the price or worst case, step away from the deal completely. I'll, um, I'll come back to due diligence a bit. Cause I think it is one of those areas that maybe rightly people have some fear of and I, I definitely get a few questions about so I'll, I'll i'll come back to it as we go so yeah so they got through due diligence got through due diligence sir and, and as the sellers are working through that process the buyers will in the background be preparing the share purchase agreement which is the main contract for the sale and purchase of the shares and that's split into various parts there's the front end of the document which is the bit that the the, the sellers in particular are interested in because that has the detail of what shares are being sold what's being paid for the shares when you're being paid um, for the shares. So it's quite common to have an amount paid up front and then an amount being paid uh, over a deferred period. But then there are other things in that document, particularly in the schedules, uh, which are attached to it, um, which are the more technical buyer protections, the most common one being warranties, mm-hmm. but there'll also be a tax covenant. There will probably be some indemnities, which will be in the body of the share purchase agreement itself. And that's probably something that's worth having a further discussion around later on in this call, these kind of bioprotections, because that's the kind of jeopardy for sellers, because that's where their concern is. We don't want to have to pay back to the buyer any of this cash that we've been paid for our shares. And so it's claims under those warranties and indemnities that are the most likely cause of that kind of repayment or adjustment to um, what may be paid over the deferred period. Now, sitting alongside that share purchase agreement is the disclosure letter, which is the probably the, the other most important document of the transaction documents. And that's really for the benefit of the sellers. So what the sellers can do is disclose against warranties any matter which would make all or part of a warranty untrue or misleading. And is deemed that provided that disclosure is made fully and accurately and fairly so that the buyer has, has a good level of awareness of the issue at hand, then it's deemed that they have full knowledge and they can't bring a claim against uh, mm-hmm. the sellers for breach of that warranty. So that disclosure letter, really important if you're on the sales side. And then there are various others, and you'll probably remember dozens and dozens of little ancillary documents, so like stock transfers, <laughs> yes. uh, board minutes, resolutions, resignation letters from directors, potentially settlement yes. agreements if, if you're terminating your employment at completion and then maybe a consultancy or a new employment mm-hmm. contract if you're then going to go and work 
It's the, the number of documents, isn't it? It's, it's the number of versions by the time it's been back and forward. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, definitely documentary overload uh, at times, especially uh, ours is a, a small agency. So on, on our side of things, it was just me dealing. And yes, that is, I would say, probably the thing that, that sellers don't appreciate if they haven't done this before is the amount of time and pressure it puts on the sellers to not just get all this information together, but to review lots and lots of, of fairly complex legal documents. And these people, my clients aren't lawyers, so some of them have been through this process before and they have an idea, but actually yeah. it's not what they do every day. So you can't just send someone a 130-page share purchase agreement and go, that's the contract. If you've got any questions, let me know. People will normally need a level of hand-holding through that document so that they can be comfortable with the content you know i would say no one's ever going to be happy because they're always having to give things that i want to give but have that comfort that actually there's nothing there that should overly concern them but it's, yeah the bulk of the documents is one thing but it's the pressure you feel for every line of them as well because for me it was like where it's one it was so outside my comfort zone anyway but two it's some of the biggest sets of documents you're ever going to deal with in your life and you want to get to right and i would say you and actually well once we removed American lawyers from the, once we got it to the UK, I think the, the advisor lawyers as well, actually, I think everyone was really good at guiding through. And I think any images of, I don't know, courtroom drama, adversarial, yeah, I think maybe there's a little bit of that, but we still had the American lawyers involved, but it yeah. melted away once it was all this size of the Atlantic and, and was all very sensible. And I think you all did a great job at, as you say, the handholding. He's really needed because it was over absolutely overwhelming for me. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is overwhelming, and, and the, the sheer volume of uh, of documents uh, are, are quite astounding if you haven't been through it before. I suppose the other thing is you you, you look at that sort of that, that concept of the courtroom drama. Now, if this ever end up in court, that's normally because I've done something wrong. I'm a non contentious <laughs> lawyer, and, and so my job in and I do come across lawyers who either don't do enough in this sector or or just perhaps of a background in a different area of, of more contentious-based law, where they seem to find great joy in putting obstacles in the way and actually mm. disrupting the relationship between buyer and seller. Whereas actually our job isn't to do that. We, we, we're, we're working on a transaction where there's a common purpose. The buyer wants to buy, the seller wants to sell. Yeah. So we've just got to be the conduit that makes that happen whilst giving our respective clients a decent level of protection. But all business is a risk. There's never, you can never guarantee that something isn't going to go wrong. But for the most part, Touchwood, it, 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 it really doesn't. So if you've got a lawyer that's nitpicking or just doing very heavily buyer or seller biased versions of documentation, all it does is agitate and, and, and can lead to that breakdown in, in, in what potentially starts off as a positive relationship between buyer and seller. A lot of it is, is our job is, yes, to, to, to be your lawyers, to represent you, to make sure you're protected. But it's also not to get in the way of a deal that, that, that your mm -hmm. client ultimately wants to happen. Sorry, I've, I've interrupted the phone. We were going through the steps. Yes. Yes. Uh, so that's it. You have all of those as an ancillary documents. And there's also back and forth, as you remember, so lots of versions of all of these documents. But eventually you'll come to a point where They've been negotiated to a level where buyer and seller are both happy with, with what's in them or, or have come to an acceptable compromise. And that's when you move to, to completion. You can have a split exchange and completion, but we normally only do that where there is some sort of regulatory or compliance requirement. 
if not if it's a regulated industry and we need to get FCA approval or something like this, an insurance broker or mm-hmm. an independent financial advisor or something like that, then we may have that split exchange once we go off to the FCA and try and get them, re- make sure that there's no regulatory issues there. Um, but for most transactions, there's a simultaneous exchange and completion where it all happens at the same time. And then ideally you get transferred a nice chunk of cash into your bank account and everyone shakes hands, says, oh, what, what a brilliant transaction that was. And then you move on to the post-completion side of things, which you know, may be best an element of handover assistance for a few months to, to show your buyer how the business works, introduce them to your, your clients and main contacts. Usually on, on certain on larger transactions, there would normally be a longer period. So there may be a period of employment for a year, perhaps longer or consultancy, or in uh, other cases, there may actually be uh, some form of earnout, which requires that would normally be where taking you know, your sort of example, uh, where your acquirer is based in the US or you know, wherever else in the world they're based and they're not physically going to come over and start running your business. Um, they, they want, so they'll, they will say, look, actually Matt or, or, or whoever, we want you to go around running this business for, you know, a year, two years, three years, whatever it is. And we will actually pay you more if the business hits certain milestones and targets that we're expecting. Obviously that's, then that's a very important term of the contract because those need to be achievable. Otherwise you're not going to get the value in the business that, that you expect. And also it's quite difficult, I think, for, for business owners who are selling to then go and suddenly be working for someone else when they've been their own boss for so many years. It's that kind of change of mindset is quite difficult. You want to make sure that that person feels that actually they're going to at least be allowed to get on with the job. What's being asked of them in terms of the earnout isn't overly onerous or, or, or difficult to achieve. But there's always some element of concern there because it's just if you've run your business for the last five, 10 years, the way you want to pretty much autonomously suddenly being answerable to someone else, perhaps sat over the other side of the Atlantic is not such a great feeling. I think that step through will be really valuable to a lot of people because as you said, unless you've been through it, it's not something you ever spend any time thinking about, even if you're someone who dreams of selling. Yeah. You don't really think about the process and know about the process till you go through it. And I think most people's kind of experience of transactions with lawyers, it, it tends to be property-based. So then buying and selling yeah. their... You know, residential houses, maybe a commercial property, an investment property, something bad, but that's very different. And it is almost, it's quite surprising, really, the level of difference. Because if you were selling a, a house for one and a half million, the process itself is actually quite straightforward. The contract is only a few pages long. People rely on their searches and surveyors mm-hmm. to say that the, the house is, is structurally sound and it's, it's worth the money that you're paying for it. But actually, it's quite a, it's surprisingly, simple and straightforward, the, the process and the documentation around it. Whereas if you're buying or selling a business for one and a half million, the comparative complexity of the documents and everything involved is quite stark, really. And there is a reason for that in a way, in that if you're buying a property, it's one asset and you have your survey, you take out your insurance, blah, 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 and you've got a fairly good idea that you're, you're getting what you're paying for. And this is why on a share sale in particular, the due diligence is so in-depth. It's because when you buy a company, you buy everything in that company's history, whether you know about it or not, whether you like it or whether you don't. So if you go and buy a company and four or five years ago, they didn't pay the right level of corporation tax or invested in some dodgy you know, tax avoidance scheme, then 
there is no defense to that. If you bought the company and, and, and you didn't know about that, HMRC aren't going to come and go, okay, sorry, right, we'll look at the, the sellers. They're going to say, no, you own the company now. It's the company's liability. It's the company that needs to pay the tax and pay along with any penalties and any interest, et cetera, et cetera. And that the same goes for historical claims, could be employment claims or could be breach of contract claims, whatever it is, or, or IP infringement claims. It doesn't matter that it wasn't on your watch or when you're, during the term of your ownership. If it happened and you own the company, you are ultimately responsible, which is why for the buyer side, they put all those warranties and indemnities in the contract because that is their protection. Because if that then does come out of the woodwork, then there's something unexpected or what wasn't told to them which leads to them having some sort of loss or suffering, suffering some sort of loss. Their comeback then is under those warranties and indemnities. And that's how they ultimately hold the former owners, the, the, the sellers responsible for those issues, which may have arisen during their time owning the business. How then can small agencies who are selling, who, for instance, selling to a senior member of the team as a succession plan, the funds that are involved are likely fairly small. How do they, very quickly, I can imagine they get to the point where legal fees could really reduce the value of the transaction. How can you navigate that complexity when there's transactions smaller? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think you're right in the, the work that goes into or should go into a transaction that's 150 grand is probably 80% plus the same as what would go into a transaction that's one and a half, two million pounds. So the fees aren't going to, aren't going to be drastically different, but proportionally to the size of what you're getting, it seems much easier to swallow if you're getting two million quid and you get a bill for 20 grand or, or whatever you get your bill for, rather than you're getting a bill for you know, 15 or 16 grand and actually you're only getting 50K. But we do try and be sensible. Because we'd say in those odd, in those kind of scenarios that the risk to the buyer is, is slightly different. If everything goes really badly, you know, that they're exposed to 150K, obviously there could be some things that would lead to a, a claim that's more than that. But actually the chances of it with, with smaller deals is less likely. So we would try and say, let's be sensible in terms of the level of due diligence. Let's try and be a bit more sensible in terms of the share purchase agreement, let's try and keep that a little bit more streamlined and let, let's not go to town with lots of unnecessary warranties. Let's try and keep those at a more suitable level whilst also nodding to the fact that the buyer does need a level of protection. We would, or, or we should as lawyers, take into a, a account the kind of level of risk that's there for the, the buyer and seller and make our documents proportionate. Having said that, and particularly it's something we happen, that happens when we have US acquirers. Sometimes they just say, no, this is how we do it. This is our legal due diligence request. This is the SPA we use. And it's really to be handed. And that can be quite daunting and put a lot of pressure on mm -hmm. the sellers. The other things that we can do to mitigate that risk is that there are insurance policies available. So historically, warranty and indemnity insurance has been around for a number of years now. But those policies certainly were and still are to an extent very expensive. And when you start to look at the, if you're doing a transaction for let's say a one and a half million, two million quid to, for, for a warranty and indemnity policy, if you can get one at that level, you're probably looking at somewhere between minimum sort of 40 grand. They could be right mm -hmm. up to a hundred grand plus. So they become very expensive. And so a lot of times people think actually, no, it's just you know, work through it. I'm going to rely yeah. on disclosure. 
rather than those policies. Until you got up to a minimum of kind of 15 million, it almost became that they weren't really viable from a cost perspective. There is now a new product out there called TLPE for short. I think it's Transaction Liability Private Enterprise Insurance or something like that it stands for. And it works in a similar way and effectively it ensures the sellers against breach of warranty. And provided that there's no fraud or negligent misstatement, that yeah. kind of thing, it's just something that's come out of the woodwork that they didn't know about, then that insurance product will pay out. And it's, it's a game changer in terms of the policy premium on them. Rather than, I think we did one for a £2 million transaction a few months ago, and the premium was ten and a half grand. And that was the, the, the sellers, they'd emigrated to Australia. The business was still in the UK, but was being run by the management team. And actually that was their peace of mind. They said, okay, so we could take out this insurance and that covers those risks. It doesn't cover indemnities, which are, we'll, yeah. we'll probably come to later, but the warranties, which is the, the bulk of the buyer protections, if you will, will, will cover them boxed off. You touched on other things there and other ways of, of limiting the cost. And you mentioned selling the business to the current management team. So your management buyouts or management buy-ins, that, that kind of thing. Yes, that can work and that can definitely streamline things, but the management team would need to be at a sufficient level. Perhaps they were directors, if not shareholders, or, or even they may be minority shareholders, but not majority mm. shareholders. But they have to be involved enough in the business that they've got a good idea of what's there and they've been there sufficiently long that they know that there aren't massive historical problems there. Yeah. And then you can have a much more lightweight share purchase agreement to deal with things. There's also things like employee ownership trusts, which are quite interesting, very good for sellers. For buyers, I think there's a little bit more to think about on mm -hmm. their side of things. It's probably a conversation for another time, but there's a, a should be an awareness of using those sorts of, I guess, mechanisms to achieve an exit and the tax kind of benefits of doing things in that way. So there's lots of different ways you can structure it, which may reduce the scope of due diligence and may you know, reduce the comprehensiveness of the share purchase agreement and the buyer protections that are required. But most transactions still proceed on the way of a sale to a, an external third party. And there is a, a process, unfortunately, yes. is followed and is applied to those transactions. And, and as I said, the difficulty is that process is the same, whether you're getting a small amount of money or a very large amount of money. How um, long does that process typically take? I, I suppose typical is probably a difficult word, but how long from hits the terms to completion? Yeah. What sort yeah. of so, so we would normally say a typical transaction should be somewhere between eight to 12 weeks start to finish. So two to three months effectively. Yeah. Now, market forces do change that. And over the last, let's say 12 to 18 months, I think it's been noticeable that deals are taking longer to get through. And I think that's partly because people are being a little bit more, I guess they're trying to be, a, 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 they, they want to be a little bit more confident before committing to transactions on the buyer side. Also, a lot of transactions rely on third party funding. So from a bank or other financial institution. And at the moment, the cost of borrowing is a lot higher than it was even 12 months ago. So that is leading to people being a little bit more cautious about how they spend their money and when they spend their money. And also those banks are, as ever with banks, increasingly more difficult and slow to deal with. And they also normally want to undertake their own due diligence. They want to review yeah. the data and they want to look at the transaction documents and make sure that the, the process that's been followed is the correct process and is appropriate for the, the level of transaction because ultimately it's their money that is potentially at risk. And obviously, if you throw in a third party into anything, 
particularly a third party that isn't as invested in the transaction as the buyer and seller are, they work at their own pace. Yeah. And anything goes right now if you've got a third party. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I still say that you don't want to really go on much longer than, than 12 weeks, but certainly we've seen a few that have been you know, 16 weeks and, and, it, and that, that is usually due to the buyer side. So whether it's the buyer or, or the buyer's you know, bank and, and advisors, normally the seller wants to get the transaction done as quickly as possible. You get out of there, yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Th- th- there's a couple of points in that process that I think are probably worth going back to because just because they're going to be more alien to anyone who's, who's never been through it before. So restrictive covenants yeah. to begin with. Because I remember that being one of those things that probably arrived. I probably Googled it or had some vague idea for a, a property transaction, I don't know, in, in the past about where covenants are. Explain those to me. So restrictive covenants or non-compete clauses that are sometimes referred to are essentially a tool to ensure that the buyer protects the goodwill of the, of the business by, by essentially saying that the sellers for a period of time post-completion won't compete with the business and won't do things that are going to damage the business. Yeah. So there's normally a blanket kind of restriction to say that if you're a, a design agency that you won't go and set up a, another design agency for a, a period of time post-completion. And then there are other ones that flow from that. So things like you won't poach clients to supply them with services that are in competition with the business. You won't try and employ any of the employees or, or, or unsettle the employees or cause them to leave and do that kind of thing. And, and that period of time is or should be reflective of the price that's being paid for the business. So the more money that you're being paid, the more it's seen as reasonable that those restrictions are a longer in duration. People have often come across these sorts of things with employment contracts and everyone always goes, oh, we've heard that you you may as well not have them because they're really hard to enforce if you can enforce them at all and all that kind of stuff. And that is right in the context of employment contracts because the courts see them as restraints of trade and they don't think it goes against public policy to say that people can't go and find employment wherever they need to find it. But that is different because that person is, is merely an employee. They're not an owner of the business. Whereas these restrictions are tied to someone who has owned the business and obviously has a lot of goodwill, has a lot of knowledge, of how the business operates, probably good relationships with clients and could really severely damage the mm-hmm. business if they went and set up in competition the week after completion. Also, they're getting quite a substantial or hopefully a substantial payment for the sale of their shares. If you're an employee on 50 grand a year, it might be perfectly feasible that trying to restrict you for 12 months after you leave employment yeah. for going to work in a sector is unreasonable. It's not fair and it's not proportionate to what you've been paid. Whereas if you sell your business and you pocket five or six million quid personally, then the course won't say you can afford not to work in this sector for a couple of years post completion. You seem quite so unfair at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. So they're much more enforceable in these sorts of transactions where you're tying it to a, a capital event. And is that often pegged also to the earnout as well? So there's this extra lever of, well, actually, I'm expecting to get paid some more money and I don't want to upset anyone anyway. So yeah, even without. Exactly. So even in the nano, you'll have those restrictions, but there'll be a carve out from you performing services to the company or the buyer as part of that, your ongoing engagement. But obviously, if you're working in the business, then the risk to the, if you're locked in with the nano and the incentive of getting paid more money, the risk proportionately to the, the buyer is lower because you should be doing all you can to actually promote the business and its growth uh, rather than damaging it. But if you're certainly, if you're stepping away 
or will be stepping away fairly shortly after completion, then yeah, it's reasonable for the buyer to expect some protections. The length of time, it still rings true that the more reasonable you make those restrictions, the more likely it is a court is going to uphold. But I guess historically you'd say there would be a geographical element to the restriction. So you, don't, you can't compete with the business within this geographical area. But nowadays, trade is done all across the world. A yeah. lot of it's remote. You'll have clients in the US or South Africa or wherever else, Australia. You can't possibly say that just because you're based in the UK, that's going to stop you trading with those, you know, with people all over the world. So that geographical element of it is perhaps harder to justify now as the seller. But so actually the time limit should be reflective. So if you're selling your business for, as I said, 150 grand, I'd be arguing that restricted covenant shouldn't be any more than 12 months. If you're getting a couple of million quid for it, then two to three years might be a bit more reasonable. But certainly when you start going above three years, I always think there's a risk that if they were challenged, a court may say, no, they're unreasonable. I have quite often seen five years being put in there. And my advice when I'm acting for the seller, if I was for the buyer, I would never even try in five years. I think the risk of it being challenged is too great. I'd rather go for three years on the basis that both parties are probably going to go if they came to it. That's going to be enforced. And to be honest, three years should give you as the buyer enough time to get to know the business, to get to know the clients, build those relationships. And that person in the seller yes. coming back after three years, that relationship is broken down. It's been cemented with the buyer by that time or, sh or should have been. But I think the length of time is very important. And yeah, the kind of the ones that relate to not poaching clients or, or potentially suppliers and not poaching employees, again, they should be time limited, but because they're not a restraint of trade as such, you could probably get away from it with a long one. So if you've got a smaller transaction where maybe you said the, the kind of the blanket non-compete provision might be 12 months, we may be able to say it's two years for non-poaching of clients and non-poaching of employees or that sort of thing. Makes sense. So almost the flip side of the covenants then, warranties, indemnities, disclosures. Is that Fair to describe as the flip side. <laughs> That's my, that was well, how the, the restrictive covenant, one element of the buyer protections in the share yeah. purchase agreement. The other two main ones are indemnities and warranties. The warranty, the, the big one, they're the ones where you've got a schedule, which could be you know, 20, 20 plus pages, up to probably 50 pages of, of warranties in some transactions. And those warranties are essentially contractual statements that the sellers are giving to the buyer about the state of the business and the company as at the date the company sold. And a bit like due diligence is split into sections. So the first bit will be all about the shares themselves, the ownership of the shares and the rights of the, the sellers as, uh, as individuals or, or maybe corporates, whoever the, the shareholders are, to sell those shares to the buyer. And then it will go into kind of the commercial elements of the business. So there'll be various warranties about the assets, be various worries, warranties about the intellectual property, your IT systems, the contracts, insurance, your accounts and financials, management accounts and their accuracy, employees, pension, you name it, they'll be covered by warranties. And then there'll also be a load of warranties about tax. And you as sellers, if one of those warranties set out in the share purchase agreement isn't true, and they are generally drafted very widely, just cast a net to make sure that there's nothing else that's lurking there that hasn't come up in due diligence. And it's not exactly the same as due diligence. The questions are, and the warranties are, are slightly different. Some of them will be very similar, but there'll be new things that come out in those warranties that were, weren't necessarily asked in, in due diligence. And 
if any part of a warranty is untrue or misleading and the company suffers some loss as a result of that, the buyer will have a contractual claim against the seller um, for compensation for, yeah. for the loss it suffers. So what we do as the, as the seller to, to protect the seller's interest is we have the disclosure letter. And so let, let's just take what should be quite a straightforward example. Let's say in the employee warranties, there was a warranty that said in the last 12 months, no members of staff have left the business. Now, people come and go all the time. So yeah. it may be in this example that three members of staff have left in the last 12 months. What we would do as the, as the seller's side is we would disclose against that warranty that these three employees left. We would tell them the circumstances in which they left and we'd supply any documentary evidence. So if two of them just handed their notes in and left, we would basically give them a copy of the notice, potentially a copy of their employment contract so they can see what kind of restrictive provisions are, are in there, that kind of thing. And your buyer would then normally look at those and go, okay, that's fine. There's no issue there. They're just a couple of employees that have left and they weren't critical employees to the business. If the third employee left after you found that they were, let's say, doing bits of work for one of your clients privately on the side and you just dismissed them on the spot, they might come back and say, look, there's two issues here. Firstly, we don't think you followed the correct procedure to get rid of them. Secondly, there are issues with this person going out and actively trying to poach one of your clients. And we're not convinced that if they go and set up their new business over that, that client that we think we're buying by acquiring you isn't going to go and start working with them. In respect of that employee in particular, they may want some indemnities in, in the agreement. And essentially those indemnities would be something along the lines of if the company if there's any employment action taken by the employee in respect of termination of their employment, so i.e. an employment tribunal claim, any kind of award that's, that's made by the employment tribunal will be paid by the sellers or will be reimbursed on a pound for pound basis. So let's say they bring an unfair dismissal claim, the tribunal agrees and awards them 30 grand in, in damages, then essentially the company would pay it and the buyer would come knocking at your door as the seller saying, you owe us 30 grand, please, plus all of our costs, et cetera. Yeah. And if they can, they'd probably take that off any deferred payment that was yet to be made. But if you'd been paid all the money, they would be entitled to come back and, and claim that from you personally. There may also be another indemnity in there to say that actually, if Pepsi or whoever the, the client is that that person was working for does go and moves over and starts working with that person, then insofar as the company suffers any loss as a result of that, there'll be a, another adjustment by way of an indemnity claim for any loss that's suffered. Yeah, that one would be a little bit more difficult to prove, but potentially that sort of thing could happen. As the buyer, as the seller, sorry, we would say if we were going to accept what are those indemnities, we would want them to be as limited as possible. And we'd also probably want to say, particularly in the case of that, the employee who might try and take clients with them, we would probably say that we'll give the indemnity, but we want a provision in there that if that happens, the buyer or the company has to do what it can to try and mitigate its loss. So basically bring a claim against that employee or try and do what it can to enforce the terms of its restrictive covenant, et cetera, et cetera, in a way to limit that loss and hopefully mean that their client isn't lost to that employee. That's a really helpful overview of everything involved. But what can agency owners be doing now? Let's imagine someone listening to this, they're thinking, okay, this is me, the next few years, in the next two or three years, I'm hoping to be selling my business. What should they be doing now, yeah. I suppose, to maximize their value, yeah. but also to give them 
an easier time through the process. Yeah. So in terms of maximizing value, it's a difficult one. It's obviously growing your business, growing your client base and all that kind of stuff. To lock in value in your business, there are, there are various things you can do. If you are one of several owners of the business, so there are a number of shareholders, then you should have a shareholders agreement in place. And that's basically the rules that between you agree by which you will operate the business. And in particular, it covers lots of different stuff from decision-making at board and shareholder level, dividend policies, all kinds of stuff. But there is usually a provision in there or two provisions in there called drag-along and tag-along rights, which in terms of planning for a sale are really important. So they're similar, but they one is for the, the kind of the protection of the majority of the shareholders. One is for the minority shareholders. So drag along, which is for, to protect the majority shareholders, basically says that if there is an offer made from a third party, which a majority of the shareholders wish to accept, they can essentially force the minority shareholders who may not want to sell to that third party on condition that they are paid the same price per share and have the same terms as the majority shareholders are, are offered. So you normally set that somewhere, you can give it anywhere you want, but commonly that around 75% of the shareholders. So 75% of the shareholders want to sell, the other 25 can't block the deal, they have to sell. Tag along works in a similar way for the benefit of the minority shareholders, which essentially says that if there's an offer, which if accepted, would trigger a change of control, so more than 50% of the, the voting rights changing hands, though the shareholders that want to sell their shares to give that third party the control aren't allowed to sell their shares unless and until they procure that third party makes an offer or makes the same offer to the minority shareholders. So basically, the minority shareholders can't just be left there with yeah. this completely new owner running the business. So they're quite important. Looking at your contracts, that's really important too, particularly in, in agency businesses where a lot, of, a lot of the value is tied up in the individuals that are working in the business. Mm -hmm. Making sure your employment contracts are strong and up to date, making sure they have reasonable but also comprehensive restrictive covenants. Make sure they've got those IP-related clauses to say that anything they develop or produce during the course of their employment is automatically assigned or, or is assigned to the, assigned to the company. Make sure you have an agreement with freelancer that does the same thing and make sure there's a, a provision in there probably saying that any IP is assigned, but also saying that if there's any doubt of, about whether anything has been assigned under that agreement, that the, the company can basically procure that they enter into a separate assignment of that IP if needed. That's important. The other thing is that people are always such a big factor. If you think you're going to be selling in the next two or three years and you've got some really critical people in your business that if they up and left, it would potentially severely mm -hmm. hamper the business and the sort of the exit value that you could achieve. And think about ways that you can incentivize them to stay in. Now, historically, people said, oh, we just pay good bonuses. And then there was this kind of move to, oh, we'll give them some shares. Giving people shares is potentially difficult. You can transfer shares freely as you want, unless you've got a shareholder agreement that kind of restricts transfers. But if you're granting people shares and they're an employee of the business, then there's a risk that the employee-related securities legislation is going to apply. And if it does, then essentially the, the gifting of those shares or, or whatever they're paying for those shares, if it's less than the true market value, is deemed to be a benefit in kind and therefore that they would pay tax or the rate of income tax that they're paying. So potentially quite punitive. If it's, if it's a lot of money, then they've got to go and find a lot of money to pay the tax on that transfer. Or yeah, that unlike earnings, share. they haven't got it sat there in their account. Yeah, exactly that. So 
things like EMI option schemes have become increasingly popular or growth share schemes. You've got non-executive directors and that kind of thing. But essentially, these are schemes whereby the employees, those involved in the business, will basically get a slice of the cake when the sale completes. So EMI, which Enterprise Management Incentive Schemes, they are a government-backed scheme or, or approved scheme. There's lots of tax benefits. There's benefits in terms of corporation tax relief for the company. There's also significant benefits for the employee themselves in terms of qualifying for lower rates of, of tax. And they also, because it's an option, they're not being asked to put their hand in their pocket this time. Yeah. So when the option is granted, there's no tax liability or liability to make any payment to the company for the shares. And that only occurs when the options are vested and the employee wishes to basically purchase or, or subscribe to the shares. Commonly, actually, exit-only schemes are used. It actually means that the employees will basically never be shareholders until the time the company is sold. And then they would essentially exercise their options immediately prior to the sale and then transfer their shares onto the third-party buyer. In those instances, the buyer will normally just pay them the difference between what their option price was. Yeah and what the, the third party mm. price per share was. So that's quite a good way. But obviously that really only works if the employees believe that the aim of the business owners is to sell and not... Yeah. Not Are they in. complex schemes to set up? Because we talked about <laughs> equity for the team at some point and lots of people immediately hit me loads of horror stories and reasons why I shouldn't do that. Stories of shareholders hanging around for years after employment had ended and that causing problems and all the rest of it. And these all seem yeah. like much smarter ways to look at it. But I don't recall many of them coming into conversation when I was doing things. Are they newer or are they designed for organisations that were larger than we were? No, not at all. Perhaps. Not at all. They, you know, they, they are, they've been around a, a little while now. They've increased in popularity. EMI in particular is very popular these days. And actually, no, the kind of risk is, yeah, is, is less significant because, as I said, particularly if you're using an exit-only scheme, these people will never really be shareholders. So you don't have to worry about trying to control minority shareholders who are going to cause you problems and headaches in terms of running your business. Yeah. If you want to just give people shares, then it is possible. You've got to, there are more risks involved. You've got to think about the tax perspective a little bit more carefully, but you can do that. And if you do that, what you need is a decent shareholders agreement that basically says that if those shareholders have basically acquired those shares as part of their employment package, then their holding of the shares is effectively tied to that. And if they are to leave, if they were to leave the business at any point, then those shares have to be offered for sale back to either the company itself or to the remaining shareholders or the founder shareholders or whoever it is that they need to go back to. And the price for those shares would then be linked to, or was usually linked to the circumstances in which they leave. So if they just leave because they've had enough, they want to go and work somewhere else, there would normally be what's known as a bad lever. And the price that they paid for their shares or the price they are paid for their shares, shall I say, would normally be the amount that they paid when they acquired their shares or quite a heavy discount on what the market value of the shares would be. Mm. So it's slightly punitive, really. Well, we could do it around. Um, yeah, but again, once they've got shares, they are shareholders. And so you are relying on then a shareholders agreement and essentially a contract between you to give you those rights to get them back. And you still have to enforce that if they don't do it voluntarily. Yeah. So it's still more of a headache. Whereas if you're using the option scheme, depending on how you set it up, you can have it so that as I said, essentially, they're not going to be shareholders until the moment before you mm. sell the company. And then provided you've got drag along and rights in your shareholders agreement or your articles of association, then you would rely on those to ensure that those individuals sold their shares straight on. All that sort of stuff is 
it should be in the consideration of people that are looking to sell. Also contracts with clients. And I think in the agency sector in particular, you often find that quite small agencies contract or have contracts or trade with much bigger international organizations and, and corporates. So you could be finding a small agency business based in Bristol or, or Brighton or, or London is dealing with Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Nike or, or Adidas or some of these massive corporations. And you think, wow, that's amazing. You've got these brilliant clients. How have you done that? But normally what you find then is that all of those contracts, if they exist at all, are on Pepsi's or, or Coca-Cola's or whoever's standard terms. Understanding what those contracts say, understanding how easy it is for someone to terminate, particularly for the client to terminate those yeah. contracts. Because really that's where the value is. If you said, I've got a five-year contract with Audi, let's say, and that contract, we're going to be paid half a million pounds a year. Then obviously that's, if someone buys your business and they inherit that contract, there's a value there and then they're going to attribute to it. And that's going to be reflected in your purchase price. If you say, I've got this five-year contract with Audi and you go, that's brilliant. And then when I look at it, I go, yes, but they can terminate this at any time on 30 days notice. I'm going to go, I can't really pay you too much for that contract because I can't guarantee I'm going to have it. Or what's very common in contracts these days is what's known as a change of control clause, which basically says if there's a change of ownership of one of the parties, the other party has the right to terminate the contract. Quite often they don't do that, but they do mm -hmm. sometimes use that to negotiate better terms. And in that example, Nike might turn around and go, oh, okay, you're about to sell your agency. We can terminate this agreement. Do you know what? We're not going to do that, but we actually think we're paying a bit too much for your services. So we're going to renegotiate the price. Otherwise, but if you don't like that, we can just terminate. So they, they suddenly have all And the that's time. something that would have been there in their standard terms. And yeah, exactly that. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, if we're engaged or a commercial team are engaged, to look at that, we would be highlighting that and saying, look, is there a way we can, are you happy with that? Or if you're looking to sell, that's the kind of thing we might want to try and get, have removed from that contract. It's tricky, yeah. isn't it? Particularly with agency businesses. We said on the podcast before, agencies are effectively a collection of people who are currently choosing to work together for yeah. a group of clients who are currently choosing to work with us. And that's sort of the default position. And then you go, where's the value in that? And everything yeah. else you have to start protecting from that point in. Yeah, so exactly that. So looking at your contract is important. I also, particularly with relatively new agencies or small agencies that are perhaps are growing quite quickly, a lot of it has been done with on the back of a handshake or a conversation. Yeah. You actually say, where's your contract? Or oh, they don't have one. Or oh, we've been dealing with whoever for ages. We've never had a contract. With them. And you sort of, when you say, then you're at risk, aren't you? Because there's no guarantee that they're going to carry on trading with you. That relationship may be very personal because they like you as the business owner. And if you leave, then that contract's going to, that relationship's going to come to an end. I suppose that's also quite an important point is that if someone is going to pay you value for your company or your business, then they need to believe that value will remain after the sellers themselves have left. If you find that the sellers are effectively the business, so all the relationships are with them, they do everything themselves, then actually the business is that person and the seller will normally want to step away from the business afterwards. Building a, a, an operation whereby if you got hit by a bus tomorrow, the business would actually just carry on fine without them. As scary as that sounds to business owners who have started this business from inception to where it is today is actually really important because then the value is in the company and the brand and the business and not in the individual seller themselves. I just want to draw 
all my clients' attention to that last part because that's so much of what we do because there's so many buses that can hit you. You, my background, we, we were planning for one, we found another. And I speak to a lot of people who haven't done that. And it just makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense in, in terms of an eventual exit, but also just what happens between now and then as well. So just to recap then, we covered a lot in the summary. So people thinking, yes, one day I definitely would like to be selling this and walk away with a, a few quid at the same time. From your perspective, from the legal perspective, what's their checklist of things they should be working towards? So, yeah, making sure they're contractually well-organized, making sure that's with clients, but also with employees, with freelancers, making sure that they've got a good process for retaining and also bringing on key talent. So that's where you're thinking about share option schemes or various other things. Making sure that the business isn't too reliant on the sellers themselves. So finding a way that they can step away from the business. And then, yeah, just making sure that your, your strategy and your business operations are, are well run, your financials are, are, are well run. Give the impression of being well organized and not just give the impression, but if you get into the routine of being well organized, so reviewing your contracts regularly, having your shareholders agreement in place, doing all that kind of stuff, you will find that will look good to a buyer, to an acquirer. They will look at you and go, okay, these guys look like they're well organized. It looks like they've taken the right steps and behind the scenes, it all looks like it's well run. That will reflect favorably on you. Um, otherwise, if, if there's nothing there, well, as soon as they start scratching beneath the surface in due diligence, really you're going to end up having lots of additional inquiries and there's going to be a lot of back and forth saying, oh, where's your contract with these people? This freelance that's been working on this project, where's your agreement with them? And suddenly, all of a sudden, it just puts that doubt into people's mind, which can you know, be re either reflect or manifest itself in a reduction of price or an adverse change to terms, whether that's a lower amount upfront and a longer deferred period. Or worst case, them just saying, look, actually, this business is not what we were expecting. We're going to go and find someone else to acquire because you're not what we're looking for right now. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Will. So if anyone wants to get hold of you, clarkandson.co.uk or yep. Will Anderson on LinkedIn. I'll have all those details in the show notes anyway. Thank you so much for your time and just helping unravel some of that. I think it's going to be a real good addition to the podcast lineup, although it's slightly different to what we normally do. I think it's going to make some of the rest of it make a lot more sense for those who are listening. Thank you very much. No, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Good to chat to you again. Definitely an episode to bookmark and refer back to. Thanks so much, Will. If you'd like to get in contact with Will, you can do so through clarkandson.co.uk. You'll find a link to that website together with his LinkedIn profile in the show notes and at howtosellanagency.com. That's also the place to look if you'd like to get in contact with me for any reason. I'm always up for a chat with agency owners and anyone else operating in the space, whether it's to talk about the podcast, my services as an agency advisor, mentor and non-exec, or indeed pretty much anything. My conversation with Will wraps up my current schedule of episodes, but do keep an ear out. There could be a special one-off episode following in April, and I'll continue to record conversations when I have them with other interesting built and sold founders. I'm particularly keen to talk to anyone who sold their agency through an employee-owned trust, or in fact, any journey that's slightly different to the stories that we have shared so far. Feel free to let me know if that's you, or if you know someone who I should have a conversation with. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been Matt Bennett on How to Sell an Agency.